Tonight it's kind of an odd topic. The, the title is The True Ride. It's a poem that I read this week that I wanted to talk about. Um, and to work into the talk, I'm going to kind of go into a bit of a rant about something I've, I've talked about many times before. Um, I believe that all of the adults in America, including myself, were probably the most immature, spoiled group of adults that have ever walked the face of the earth. And I think it plays out in so many ways. You know, one is, what is our relation to making excuses? You know, how many excuses did you make in the last week? Maybe some, maybe a lot, maybe none. You know, of course, there's that all-purpose excuse of, you know, I just couldn't help it. I just can't help it, you know. How often do we go there? You know, that it, it's essentially kind of a, a total denial of any kind of responsibility. You know, and, and totally age-appropriate for, you know, a six-year-old or something. And related to excuses... How often are we implicitly asking for permission or approval from others? You know, I'm not really going to believe what I saw with my eyes until someone else confirms it for me. Or, you know, I'm not going to, you know, believe what I think is true or what I'm sensing. Um, you know, I can't like myself until somebody else gives me permission to like myself. You know, this sort of thing. All these kind of codependent behaviors. And, and America is just awash with poor boundaries and codependent behaviors. You know, all of these are ways that, that mitigate against us taking full responsibility for our lives. You know, one, one way we could say, what, what is it to be truly grown up? A person who is truly deeply responsible for their whole life. Another way that immaturity is kind of manifest, it, and it's really odd, I've talked about this before, we live in a world that is full of systems that are attuned to giving us what we want. You know, any website we go to, there's some kind of algorithm, like desperately trying to figure out exactly what you want. What do you want to buy? What do you want to watch? What, what, what opinion do you want to see, you know? Um, and we're surrounded by these algorithms. And in some sense, we're the first generation of adults that have ever had to deal with them, you know? Um, we all carry the internet in our pocket. And again, there's something just so absurd about that. Like, you know, we take it for granted, but... Um, You know, if you think 200 years ago, someone living in a small town, the only products they could buy were what was at the general store. And maybe, you know, at certain times of the year, certain fruits or vegetables would become available, certain specialty products would come in from the big cities, you know, and it would only be those times of years that you could get those, you know. 
and even just you know the advent of the Sears calen- the Sears catalog at the turn of the century that was huge you know you could you could buy something from the Sears catalog you know amazing um, now we live in a world where we can have whatever we want whenever we want it you know we have all these abilities and you know, not necessarily the skills commensurate to these abilities. And of course, it's one thing with products, getting all the products we want, you know, like, I don't like that brand or that brand. I like this brand only, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, But in some ways, it's more pernicious. These algorithms give us the worldview that we want. You know, we, we live in a we live in a world in which people can have a, a, a custom worldview all their own, you know. And this is very much like the, the child's behavior of make-believe. You know, to some extent, we're all doing a bit of make-believe. You know, just consider the question, are you 100% honest with yourself? It's a challenging question. I think the only person who would give a a quick yes to that question would be someone who is quite self-delusional. And we, we understand this about the mind now. We understand, especially from studies of the psychology of addiction, the mind is so powerful in creating a self-serving narrative. It's so powerful in creating a narrative that tells us that we don't need to look at the thing we don't want to look at, you know. And, you know, and again, with the psychology of addiction, you know, if I'm addicted to something, it might be obvious to everyone else in my life that I have a problem, but I can't see that I have the problem, you know. And maybe none of us are addicted to external substances, are we addicted to emotional cycles? Are we addicted to thought patterns? Are we addicted to the same drama going through our head day after day after day, you know? Do we realize we have a problem, you know? Do we realize that we're addicted? In some sense, our, our deepest patterns of make-believe concern our relationship to death. America is a sort of a vast Disneyland make-believe game avoiding death, avoiding the thought of mortality. And it's funny, I, I think a few weeks ago I gave a talk, maybe about a month ago now, I gave a talk facing, making friends with death, some kind of crazy topic like that. Um, but really all the wisdom tradition started with this, you know, head-on look at mortality. Um, and really, again, 200 years ago, it was part of life. The 1820s, say, People died all the time. Children died all the time. Young people died all the time. You know, if two people got married at 18, chances are very good that both of them weren't going to be alive by the time they even got to 40, you know? 
it was it was deeply present. And of course, now we live with you know modern medicine and you know antibiotics and inoculations and, and all that is great. But rather than be thankful for that, we take it for granted and we ignore death. Rather than be grateful for this amazing triumph of Western medicine, we completely take it for granted. You know. So I think at this point I'll share this poem. First I'll share it with the the Zoomies. Good hybrid technique. Share with the Zoomies first. And there share with the Zoomies. Thank you. So there are two poems that I read by this woman, Jennifer Wellwood, who is a, a spiritual teacher. She was she's married to John Wellwood, who is an author and spiritual teacher. John has passed away a few years ago. So the, the first poem gives the title to this talk, The True Ride. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we haven't noticed, let's wake up. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show the real. This is the true ride, Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So that's the poem, and it, it really struck me because it was it's a very intense poem. Um... You know, and it, how can I say, there's no denying the fact that if we lose someone we love, or even, even smaller scale, you know, we, sell, we suffer a heartbreak, we get fired from a job, you know, those are painful experiences. But I think there's a way that we multiply those painful experiences when, when we're acting surprised, when we're, you know, like, why did this happen to me? Why is life so unfair to me, you know? The universe must have it in for me, you know, this kind of thing. Um, loss is the truth of life. Loss is happening to everyone. It's not a question of will you experience loss. It's an experience of how you will participate in the, the general experience of loss. You know? Impermanence 
is one of these powerful Buddhist teachings. The Buddha talks about the three marks of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of substantial self. And the Buddha says that all marks in the universe, all objects in the universe bear these three marks. And so any physical object or any person is impermanent, unsatisfactory in the sense that we're not going to find our ultimate fulfillment in any object or in any single person, Um, and lack of substantial self, that everything is ultimately connected to everything else. In some sense, that last one is a kind of consolation, but unfortunately we only get there by, by renouncing the ego, which is not so fun. So I'm going to read another poem by Jennifer Wellwood, also an intense poem. This one is titled Unconditional. Willingness to experience aloneness. I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game to play it as pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. And what she's pointing to there, I would call the, the, the sort of the, the, the red-hot ember truth at the core of healing. You know, our mammalian brains want to move away from pain. We want to do everything possible to push away the uncomfortable stuff and stay with the comfortable stuff. That's what our, our mammalian brains want to do. And in fact, a lot of maturing is about learning those ways to, to, to moderate our own pleasure-seeking, you know, by sharing or delayed gratification or, you know, all these basic skills that we learn that, that facilitate healthy connection, you know. But the the deepest paradox is that to begin healing, we need to turn around and start walking toward our pain. We need to get curious about it and engage it with with compassion and curiosity. You know, that as long as I run away from it, it's pursuing me. It's becoming the dragon that's getting bigger day by day because I'm running away from it. You know, when I turn toward it, which initially is more difficult, it actually results in deeper connection with myself and deeper capacity. You know, and it, it's a paradox. I realize that, how can I say, for the person, I know there are some people who at early points in life were simply overwhelmed with pain. And then they they found some way to get out of that place and be, you know, at least minimally happy. And so when I say you need to turn around and face the pain, sometimes a person like that might think, you know, I'm saying you have to be overwhelmed by pain again. 
you know. And to use the metaphor, like that person was drowning in the river of pain when they were young. They, they got out of it and they went to the desert. They got as far away from the river as possible. And I'm not saying jump back in the river, but I'm saying sit down by the banks of the river and watch the river, you know, which is quite different. So I will say about both these poems by Jennifer Wellwood, um, she speaks to something that is very deep and very profound. Um, I don't necessarily give her an A plus as as a pure poet. Um, but on the other side, there is someone I give an A plus as a poet, and that is Mr. Rumi. And before I read this poem, this is this is perhaps my favorite Rumi poem. I want to talk a little about Rumi. Give you the the brief Rumi story. Um, Rumi's father was um, was a religious scholar, sort of conventional religious scholar. And, and so Rumi started out imitating his father and, you know, studied all the conventional religion, the conventional Sharia, the Muslim law, and became a conventional scholar of religion. And was his father had passed away, and so he was running the school that his father had been running. And so the first few years of his life were, were very conventional. And then he met this character, Shams al-Dun, and this meeting changed his life. Shams al-Dun was a fakir, a, a wandering holy man. Um, and Rumi completely fell under the spell of Shams' teaching, this ecstatic teaching. It, it opened him up in a way that he had never been open before. And he became very devoted to Shams. They became inseparable. You know, some modern scholars think they actually became lovers. It's hard to say. Um, Rumi's more conventional friends Got, got kind of disturbed by the, the, by the impact that Shams was having on Rumi. So at one point, one evening, they were in a house together with some, some of the, their followers, and there's a knock at the back door. And they, they said someone wanted to talk to Shams. Shams went out that back door. Rumi never saw him again. You know, and probably he was murdered. You know. But Rumi was distraught with grief and even further opened up. And because because Shams had been a wandering holy man, he started wandering looking for Shams. And and in that process, became himself a wandering holy man, you know. Um, And over time, just developed this ecstatic relationship to God through, you know, being blown open by grief, being blown open by everything. Um, So when he talks about the capital F friend in the poem, this is his way of talking about God. And really, in his later years, so the poem actually mentions Shams al-Din. In his later years, Shams al-Din became almost this kind of metaphor for like the, the unattainable beauty of God that will 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 be united with someday. You know, it he became completely transformed as a symbol in Rumi's mythology. So here's the Rumi poem, which I love. In that moment you are drunk on yourself, the friend seems a thorn. In the moment you leap free of yourself, of what use is the friend? In the moment you are drunk on yourself, you are the prey of a mosquito. In the moment you leap free of yourself, you go elephant hunting. In the moment you are drunk on yourself, you lock yourself away in cloud after cloud of grief. In the moment you leap free of yourself, the moon catches you and hugs you in its arms. 
In the moment you are drunk on yourself, the friend abandons you. In the moment you leap free of yourself, the wine of the friend in all its brilliance and dazzle is held out to you. In the moment you are drunk on yourself, you are withered, withered like autumn leaves. In the moment you leap free of yourself, winter appears to you in the dazzling robes of spring. All disquiet springs from the search for quiet. Look for disquiet, and you will come suddenly on a field of quiet. All illness springs from scavenging for delicacies. Renounce delicacies and poison itself will seem delicious to you. All disappointment springs from your hunting for satisfactions. If only you could stop, all imaginable joys would be rolled like pearls to your feet. Be passionate for the friend's tyranny, not his tenderness, so the arrogant beauty in you can become a lover that weeps. When the king of the feast, Shams al-Din, arrives from Tabriz, God knows you'll be ashamed then of the moon and the stars. And I'd like to make the suggestion, read that poem every day. You know, because we all have days when we're off. We all have days when we're locking ourselves away in cloud after cloud of grief. And we're the prey of a mosquito, like the the smallest problem overwhelms us. And, you know, we, we have whatever internal temper tantrum we have. But it's important to realize we always have agency. We always have agency. We always have the ability to choose, to shift our perspective, to step into something that is more aware, more noble, more powerful. We're all far more powerful than we ever give ourselves credit for. So I'll read the rest of the quotes. From William Feather, if we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. (laughs) (laughs) not fun Ajahn Chah says if you know if you hold on to any expectation you miss the wisdom it is is impermanent be the one who knows the witness to it all this is how trust grows one of my favorite Mary Oliver quotes to live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, let it go. Tara Brock, an incredibly wise teacher, says, a crisis has the power to shatter our illusions, to reveal that in this impermanent world, there really is no ground to stand on, nothing we can hold on, nothing we can do to hold on. Elizabeth Mattis Namgol says, I have a personal koan. How do we live a life we can't hold on to? How do we live with the fact that the moment we're born, we move closer to death? When we fall in love, we sign up for grief. How do we recognize, reconcile that gain always ends in loss? gathering and separation. And finally, from the amazing writer, Race Menekin, for whom I have tremendous respect, he said quite simply, there's no sane or healthy alternative to growing up. <laughs>